Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, more love. Yet another astounding guest. I, I, I promise you people, I work so hard to bring you the best guests, bring you the people with the highest frequency information. So much good information. We have Anne Marie Keppel here today, and we're talking about her latest book, Death Nesting, The Heart-Centered Practices of a Death Doula. She's a death doula. She has so much to share with us. It's going to be amazing. But first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, click that button that connects us. So when amazing people like Anne-Marie come on, you get that notification instantly. You get a ding, you look over, oh my God, Anne-Marie Campbell's on the show. I'm, I'm listening right now. So sign up there. And of course, word of mouth, tell a friend, you know, people in your life that need this information. There's so much growth happening on this planet right now. And, and we're bringing people the best information. You know, these people bring them here. Midnightsonearth.com. Okay. So we're going to talk to Anne-Marie just a second, but first, I have to read her bio. So here we go. Anne-Marie Kempel is a death doula educator and founder of the nonprofit Village Death Care. A nurse assistant, Reiki master, and lifelong meditator, she guides individuals transitioning out of life and assists families with the end-of-life journey. Experienced in home funerals, Green burials and psychedelic assisted therapy. Her work as a death doula has been published nationally in the Washington Times, on usnews.com, and in Pulp Magazine. She also won an independent publisher Ippy Award in 2020. Anne Marie delights in the joy of living with her family in the Northeast kingdom of vermont and by the grace of the divine she's here with us today hello Anne marie hello jake i'm so happy to be here yes by the, grace of the divine indeed yes <laughs> well we have so much to share with people people i feel like generally don't understand how brief the human experience is and how we have these cycles that are a part of life birth and death and they're so natural and they're so beautiful but they come up quick you're here phew, and then you're gone. And it's so important to honor this death experience. I feel like, like as Western culture, we've lost touch with that. Absolutely. And, you know, just something that you said that uh, we don't realize actually how long, how short of a period we're here for people, even people who have, um, you know, people know that they're going to die someday, but they're still shocked when they get the diagnosis or they're still shocked, even if they have a, a, a terminal uh, illness, they're still shocked when the time comes. So even like as soon as they approach the active dying process, it seems like they oh, people just say, I thought I had more time. That's Interesting. True. And 
even though like when your consciousness, like you talk about in your book is slipping in and out of this dimension, you kind of lose a sense of time. So really when you're in that spiritual state at the end of your physical life, it seems like your whole life technically has gone by in like five minutes. It has that feeling of five minutes. I'm sure people have told you that as a death doula. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's actually why I started doing this work in the first place. So um, I, I just, what I was doing was um, very shallow. I was a, um, a music manager and an event coordinator and I would coordinate uh, festivals and weddings and concerts and all of these like beautiful fun things and people had a great time. And then the end of the night came and over the years, I just felt like more and more empty from that work. And I'm like, why it's everything is moving so fast. Like, do you ever feel like the day of the week, you're just surprised by the day of the week Thursday <laughs> again. And so that was just happening week after week, after year after year. And I'm like, I need to get out of this because it's feeling so empty and this is not what I'm, it, it's not fulfilling me. <laughs> and um, what did end up fulfilling me and having me feel like um, that life is the most beautiful, precious, unimaginably blissful blessing is studying death. And so it's funny, it took that polarity. It wasn't all of the excitement and um, and the good times that made me feel like life was awesome. It was actually studying the absence of it that made me realize that, wow, what I've, you know, what we're doing here is really profound. Oh, absolutely. Profound, brief, and that energy you were feeling that was actually fulfilling you is that ethereal extra dimensional energy that's coming from source that's showing you that there's something bigger than us at the very least because of this death experience but for some people out there that don't know what is a death doula hmm. uh, a death doula is nothing new so it's just somebody who helps somebody who's dying or, or any other being that's dying. Um, so there are animal doulas. And of course, there can be environmental doulas. There can be all kinds of things. So it's helping helping people with the transition. People are more familiar with uh, birth doulas. Right. So um, a death doula is the same concept, the same idea. You're just ushering the life out rather than ushering it in. Um, and the work is is ancient. It's natural. It's... it's um, it's it's what one does when they care for somebody and then the dying time comes. So the term death doula is new. That's the part that um, is kind of trending, if you will, um, that that it, it's kind of a spark um, in social networks right now that people think like, oh, I want to do that. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, but the the work itself is not new. Because you think about civilizations like Egypt, where their whole cultural impetus was to prepare for death, death doulas or people in that similar role were probably exalted or at the very least treated like high positions of authority because it was such an integral role. You're helping the soul transition to its next phase of life. I, I'm not sure what else is more important except for the birth experience. My God, I actually, I would love to, to study that. I don't know much about that, but you're right. <laughs> for a civilization that had such like high respect for death, and that must have been a really, um, yeah, 
a really admired position. So the word doula is Greek, and it was typically assigned to a female um, who was a servant of sorts. Um, so it just, it, it lended itself nicely to be a title, but it also goes by other titles. There's um, end of life doula. Um, people are grief doulas or um, yeah, just lots of different titles. So it's similar in a way for people to understand this to a midwife, right? You're, you're there assisting where there really isn't a need for any kind of medical doctors, not that there would be, but you're there assisting the spirit, the spiritual aspect and the process, right? Yeah, it could be. Um, so it, it's true. Doulas, death doulas. I'm not a, I'm not a birth doula. So I'll just stick with death doula, but um, okay. they, we don't do anything with medicine. And so um, you, we are not medical professionals unless we happen to also be medical professionals and we're not therapists and we're not lawyers. Um, but each of those can end up kind of playing a role. Like you can assist people through the paperwork. You can assist people, um, companion them through medical appointments. You can companion them, um, through, or, or just have really good listening skills for holding space, whatever they're going through. So we take little elements from those things. Um, but really it's, it's, uh, as, as you were saying, a midwife, um, but also just a companion. And, and so what I like to do is I teach the family and the community to care for the one who's dying. So there's a lot of, um, people have lost their way. They don't really know how to do this kind of care anymore. And uh, they need to be reminded that they're capable of it and that it's okay. Like you're going to mess up. It's going to feel awkward. And so I really just give families and communities, I, I build the the network around the person who's dying and really just like give them permission to care for the person who's dying. Um, and, and they do, they get it. And unless they don't, and they don't want anything to do with it because they're scared or whatever situation it is, is they're very uncomfortable. But for the most part, the people come together and they get it and, and they want to care for their loved one. Oh, absolutely. Because the whole process of contacting a death doula and going that route is a choice of love. It's a love-based choice. You're going outside of the norm, I guess, pff, the current Western culture norm to find this spiritual ambassador, you could say. Do you feel like you're in a shamanic role? Because it seems like you are, because when you're in that space as a death doula, you're representing the post-death experience. You're representing what's on the other side. You're like, hey, I'm your guide. I'm your companion. I'm your death shaman, you could say, <laughs> to help yeah. you transition. Yeah. So there are a few different things. So the death doula itself typically wouldn't be doing any of that spiritual care. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. So a death doula would really be doing things more like companioning them. Um, um, they're a heart companion. They can sit vigil. They can help with groceries. They can um, help with animal care. They can help with paperwork. There's something else called uh, a psychopomp, if you will. Um, and, and that is more the spiritual care. So a death doula might 
Um, They're listening to um, their existential angst. They are asking them what their beliefs are and they're, they're trying to help them feel not alone. They're trying to help them feel safe and feel loved. Now I do do psychopomp work, but I don't want to put it out there as a blanket that all death doulas do that because it's very specific. Um, And yes, as you're saying, it can go by many, many different titles, but I do help them um, escort their consciousness out of their body. Right. There is a sense of guidance there. It seems, I mean, even if you are not necessarily doing the deep spiritual work with that person, you're there as a representative. And again, there is that sense of guidance. Yeah. So it's important to remember that people will die no matter what (laughs) they'll die on their own. So they don't actually need you there. (laughs) Um, I believe that plenty of other beings come and are in attendance. Um, And so I don't actually believe that it's possible for somebody to die alone, um, alone, alone, but um, there, there are, um, Sometimes people just need help getting out of their body because they're scared. And so what I do with them, um, I'll go into a kind of light trance state and try and meet them where they are. And um, it helps in advance to know a little bit about the person's life. So actually, a lot of people that I work with are are very, um, their beliefs are, are they're animist or their beliefs are very rooted in nature. And so I'm not always um, sending them off to God. I'm not always sending them off to um, to something, a, a higher power. Sometimes people want to um, just, they, they believe their body is going to dissolve into the earth and uh, that they're going to kind of walk out of their body. And then that's it. And so it helps to know the things that brought them great peace and comfort to begin with. So if they were all about walking through the forest and they found great peace and solace in the forest, then I can help guide them visually out of their body by simply walking into the forest. Wow, that's mind blowing because really you're just meeting people where they're at. Like you said, not even really in the trance state, but just as an individual, the things they love, the things they cared about, what they thought were important and beautiful things. That's where you meet the people. Yes. Wow. Yes. And how many deaths have you been a part of so far? Um, that's kind of hard because, um, well, I've lost count, so I don't know. Wow. It hasn't even been all that many. Like, so what I'm I'm saying when I've helped people out of their body, a lot of times I'm not even there. So I'll get the family set up. It's very private. This is one of the most, you know, it's, it's like the equivalent of being in the room with the person who's giving birth. Wow. It is so private that if I'm not, if I, if I'm not called to be there, I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to be there. Um, And sometimes I've been called and I'm like, you can do this. You can be there with your person. You're fine. You know, I'll I'll have had a relationship with them. And I will be there. But um, that's, that's not what this is about. I don't want to be like, (laughs) I don't want to be like the savior. I don't want to like come in and save the day and, and help everybody and help them out of their body. And, 
my whole thing is to empower other people, to empower them so that the next time they don't need to call me at all. They can do it themselves. And that's what I work really hard to do is rework this knowledge back into the community. Oh, wow. That's very important because the way you do things as a death doula is a natural experience. It's like how it should be. We've lost touch with that. Why did we lose touch with that? What are some of the causes of just this disconnection? Yeah. Um, I think one of the, the biggest, um, one of the biggest things is the introduction of antibiotics. So all of a sudden, you know, people were dying of just infections and, and it was, you know, it was a very terrible time when you could have had an antibiotic and it would be, and it would be cured, but it wasn't a possibility. So it was really the antibiotics and the hospital boom that came in with the United States. So in about the 1920s, late 1920s, when hospitals started expanding and then modern medicine antibiotics became godlike. They were saving people. Antibiotics were, they were doing things and, and saving people that earlier would have just not had a chance at all. And so people started trusting doctors, trusting hospitals and sending their loved ones to the hospital. And when they came back healed like magic, <laughs> then they kept sending them to the hospital until eventually people were dying there. And then as funeral homes also took over in conjunction with that, what happened is now we have people who um, the, the medical professionals take the one who's sick or dying and then immediately after the funeral home comes to get them. And so people don't even see their dead a lot of times now, like very often. Wow. It's, it's mind blowing to think about that because that's right around the hundred year mark where this new paradigm was instilled. Previously, you could say in the old world, it was a very family centric, community centric situation, but this mm -hmm. paradigm shift just kind of disconnected us and made it seem normal, at least in the Western world, to let the dead people die over there. We'll see them one last time, but that's the hospital's job. That's really kind yeah. of sad, but but you're here changing that. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully I'm here changing that. And hopefully everybody who listens to this and everyone who goes through the course that they're out there changing it too, because I'm just one person. <laughs> we need a lot, a lot of us. I mean, this is going to take generations to heal. Oh, yes. So, um, you know, we're already five generations or so, if you're considering it 20 years um, into this, and it's going to take a lot longer. Well, who knows what's going to happen with our planet, but it's going to take a long time for this to be reworked into community. I wish so much that now that we have recognized the power of antibiotics, that we can appreciate that, but not couple it with the idea that doctors and medicine are the same as a God um, and, and bring some of this back home again. And some of like the trust and spirituality that um, used to accompany <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, that used to actually be the antibiotics, right? The trust exactly. and the praying and the spirituality and the, the tent, you know, the care, the attentiveness. We lost a lot of that when the antibiotics came in. So we gave away so much power. It's interesting. It's part of the human story and we will rebalance that because 
the science, these antibiotics and other medications, they did come from inspiration and they do help people, but it wasn't meant to be something to then go, oh, okay, we have this now. Goodbye, natural world. Goodbye, herbalism. Goodbye, all of the earth's wonderful gifts that have been there for millennia to heal us because of some magic pill. It's part, again, part of the story. You don't want to put a value judgment on it, but it does seem like as this spiritual awakening is happening across the planet, that things like natural medicines, being a death duel and understanding the death process is exploding. There's an awakening happening. Absolutely. Yeah. And it couldn't come soon enough, you know, with all of the death and destruction and anger that's going on, we need this information just basic, basic care for the dying. And, um, you know, just, just to, to be absolutely spread and given out as, as widely and freely as possible. The problem is that, um, you know, there are those of us that want to study death and dying, but when you do, it really tears you apart in a lot of ways. And our society is not built in a way that supports your falling apart. <laughs> and so it actually takes a lot of emotional bandwidth um, and time to just ball your head off and wonder what the hell you're doing here. You need that space in order to really then get to the other side, which is, oh, I'm here now. <laughs> I'm empowered. I can But it takes that like that that um, shadow zone, it takes so much work in there and our society, and I'm guessing a lot of cultures around the world are just not set up for that. No, but unfortunately they have to face it. All of us as humans, we have to face our shadow now in order to activate this ascension in order to reconnect with Gaia and the creator and put this balance, this complete cosmic balance back in order. We need to do that. It's, it's happening. And you're training people to do this right now. Your book in itself, it seems like is a training manual. You have so many techniques and methods and other things that can help people. But beyond the book, you're also training people to do this. I, I am. So um, the, the book, I, <laughs> I wrote it realizing that I had a certain amount of, um, of information that needed to get out to as many people as fast as possible. So it's filled with a lot of basic information, like what happens during this period. So just basic information, also spirituality for people who want to, to explore that. Um, also herbalism for people who want to explore that. But there are a few chapters that are just about what happens to the body when it's dying. And that's the information that I felt like needed to get out there as fast as possible. So, um, and then the the trainings just ended up coming naturally, really. People loved the book so much and um, wanted to know more. And, and then that's when I can actually share all of my... Um, all of my passions and beliefs and like get into the nitty gritty of things because, you know, you can do so much more of that. If I put all of my beliefs into a book, I don't think that's a very good idea because they change over and over again. Um, you know, the world changes quickly. I keep changing. So uh, yeah. And then the in-person retreats that, that I do to people, Oh my gosh, you know, they, <laughs> when you, when the topic is death, people get close really quickly 
because you're cutting away all of the other BS and it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's like, Hey, by the way, we're all going to be out of here uh, pretty quick. What? So let's all bond right now because that's really the truth. We talk yeah. about this a lot. We're here so briefly. We have to do this work. And when you realize that, then you truly cherish each moment of life because you know how fleeting it is. Definitely. And you said in your book that the experience of death is transformational for both the patient and the caregiver. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. I talk about how there's never really one death doula in the room with the person who's dying. So even if it's just two people, even if it's just the death doula and the person who's dying, well, the person who's dying is actually the teacher because the death doula hasn't been there themselves. So they can be the companion and maybe they've read the books and maybe they can look at the charts and maybe their physical body is active and working and capable of assisting. But when you think of it, the person who's dying is the one who's doing all of the teaching. They're modeling a way to die. And it doesn't even have to be a perfect way. It could be a disastrous way, right. <laughs> according, to, according to, to your, you know, what, what you believe. And, and you could, but still, then you've learned so much like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do it like that. So they're just modeling one way, one example of one, the way one death went. And um, so it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's a, a dance between the two. And I encourage my students to, to realize that they have a strong body now, and that's why they're in this position. And one day they will not have a strong body and somebody will need to serve them. And so I really encourage people to humble themselves. You are not the savior. You are not the one with all of the knowledge. You are not the one, just humble, 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 bring it down. And, um, and then what's, what's left when, when you do reduce it to that is just love, just serving. It's very simple. Right. Mm -hmm. And unbelievably fulfilling, I imagine, because you're just literally in that bandwidth of perfect service, you could say. Yeah. As I also remind people also just not to expect a thank you because the, the work is also, you do this work and if it fulfills you in your heart and then that is, is definitely the goal. That's what you want. But don't be surprised if nobody thanks you. The person dying, they might say thank you. They might be very busy dying. And <laughs> they might never say thank you. Um, the the people around the person who's dying, you may have done everything you could. You may have changed your schedule. You may have found babysitters. You may have, but the people around them in the community or you know in that inner circle in that inner nest, they might be so brokenhearted that nobody actually says thank you to you. And so you definitely need to be doing it for yourself, for self-love, for, um, for, for that good golden feeling that, that you get that does not need to be, you know, recognized, justified. Exactly. Just service, just service to the, whatever that is, that divine mystery. Yes. 
You know that that soul is there thanking you energetically. Do you feel an energetic attachment to these people as they go? And since you've dealt with so many now, like, do you still feel attached? Do you do things to clear yourself after these sessions? Um, regularly, no. Um, it doesn't. Um, so some people kind of uh stick around for a little while. <laughs> some people over the years they've started showing up to me. So um, some a couple times people have announced that they're dead. <laughs> I'm like, Ooh. and you know, at first I, I was uh, really hesitant to um, admit what was going on or um, it's kind of embarrassing. I don't know. Like I've got a great spiritual life and outlook, but I'm still like, that's kind of weird territory, but it got to the point where I couldn't deny it anymore. Um, so wow, a couple times not all that often, but a couple of times somebody will, will want to give a message. They'll be like, Oh, Hey, you know, and I have to tell them, I'm like, look, I can't contact your wife. I'm like, that's going to freak her out. This is not my domain. This is not my territory. I hear what you're saying. Um, but yeah, so. Wow. So, so, so doing this activated a mediumship ability within you. Yes. When, yes. when did that start to show itself? Like how long into this? Um, years. Um, wow. So it, it started once I realized exactly what was going on, I could date back to other times and they just continued to get more frequent and, and more often, but probably two years ago. So, you know, it took eight years or so for for any of it to come. Wow. That is mind blowing because there is an attachment. It seems like ethereally that you're fulfilling a role. Like you're in this position for that soul. Some people would say you made an agreement with that soul to be with it as it passed before life even started. There's so many different factors as you know, but it does seem like you're there with them for a purpose. And when they talk to you now, now your mediumship is activated. Now a whole different dimension is going to open up <laughs> two years. It's just the beginning. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's quite possible. Um, <sighs> it, it has sometimes been a little bit disturbing though, because not all of, not all of them die pleasantly. So I'm a novice at this. I need to get Sally Crow on the line and be like, hey, Sally, <laughs> I know she was a guest on your show. She's the pro. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I think we're all equal. We're all fulfilling roles. Everybody has different talents and skills. Sure, some people have more experience, but we're doing it. You're doing, you're helping people. You've helped so many people. It, it must feel amazing. It does feel good. <laughs> So how many times have you been there at the exact moment of death? Um, I guess I don't know, but there, um, but the times that I have have been profound. Um, Tell me about it. The very first one was, let's see, the very first one, I was a hospice volunteer. Um, And this gentleman, this was a huge learning experience for me. It's so funny when you when you decide to do this work. And I was also a nurse assistant at the time. And so um, like I've lost track because I worked in residential care. So they were (laughs) those that died within the residential care system, too. So it was not just death doula deaths, but also in various other places. So as a hospice volunteer, 
Um, I mean, we're not in the hundreds. I mean, I'm not talking like that's not even a hundred people have I been with. Um, so there, let's see the, the one hospice patient that was the first person that I was with when they died, they were being wheeled in from the ambulance and dropped them back off at their home. And I was in the kitchen with the gentleman's wife and, uh, they wheeled the man in and put him in front of the television set. And there were infomercials playing on the television. And I was just kind of looking around like, okay, she was smoking at the kitchen table. She didn't get up. She didn't talk to him. And I got up and I went to his bedside and they transferred him from the stretcher into the hospital bed. And I started to ask him if he wanted something different on the television, but he was not responding, not responding. And so I asked his wife who was in the kitchen, I'm like, I just want to be helpful. Can I get him? Does he have any special blankets that he likes, you know, just to try and make it a little bit more comfortable? Um, can I change the station? Is there something that he likes to watch on TV? And she said, no, that's fine. And he died right then, right there in front of the TV with the infomercials on. Like, you know, the sharpest knife can cut through <laughs> any tomato. And I oh like was looking down at the man and he wasn't breathing and wasn't breathing and wasn't breathing. And I checked his wrist and he wasn't breathing. And, you know, and sometimes they can all of a sudden take a breath. And I mean, I wasn't all that experienced at the time, but he did actually die right then, right there. And I had to let go of so much at that time because I was kind of, wasn't pissed. I was in shock. And, and I was wondering why the wife hadn't attended to him. And I was wondering why, like even a nature show, like, can I put on the space program? Can I put on like literally anything other than infomercials? But, you know, if that's the way that he fell asleep every night before he went to bed was listening to infomercials, maybe he fell asleep on his recliner every single night listening to infomercials. And so that was the most relaxing, peaceful state that he could be in. And it was enough so that he was able to leave his body. So who am I to judge that? It's mind blowing how we're all different, but that did have, like you said, a huge effect on you because the soul transferred out of the body right there in front of you. Yep. But there's been other times as well. Has there been any supernatural experiences where you see like a light or, or an, or, you know, anything like that? I I personally, it's interesting when, when you talk about, well, I've only been around a hundred. I personally haven't been around any person that passed. It's definitely mind blowing to me. Have you seen anything like that? Have you felt anything like that? Um, so yes, definitely. And if you like, if you talk with people who like hospice nurses, who, um, people who are in like working in a nursing home, they're the ones who get like lots and lots of exposure to death. Not me. I'm, I'm not with everybody that often, but, um, yes is the answer. So there are, um, there are times when something very strange will happen. Like the <laughs> one time a phone rang in the room. So we had asked a question to the woman who had died. We're like, Oh, I don't really know. So-and-so would you like something like this? And she was dead and the phone rang and all of us there 
when, and we looked over at the phone and I picked it up and I said, hello. And there was nobody there. Oh my God. <laughs> and all of us in the room just, just kind of looked at each other. Goosebumps. I'm getting chills right now. Up and, down. <laughs> and I just hung the phone back up again. Um, there are other times when I felt this really strongly with my father-in-law when he died. Um, do you know Alex Gray? Of course I'm looking. It's funny because I have an Alex Gray, uh, framed poster in my office here. It's the lovers, the kissing, uh, the two people. So I'm looking on your, I'm looking at my Alex Gray. I can see your (laughs) Alex Gray. Yes. I love Alex Gray. Oh God. I just, his artwork is just unbelievable to me and if you are a death worker i don't care if you don't appreciate his artwork you're going to understand where it comes from because <laughs> all of the um all of the the eyes the eyes and almost everything yes eyeball, yes that- great. that's what happens so you feel like all of a sudden or this i'll speak for myself I feel like I'm being watched by something very, very big, like something inconceivable. And it is an awareness and an an awakened state that is aware of you. And I am aware of it. And it's this exchange of, I I don't know, it's ineffable. Um, Yes is the answer. So, uh, Wow. So essentially yes. those experiences were your most profound, you could say, when when you felt those presences with you as these people were passing. It's something, it's that great mystery, but do you also feel the ancestors or that person's spirit guides? Oh, um, nobody has ever asked me that before. Um <laughs> I'm a unique guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I know it's just taking me a second to think. So, um, I guess I'm not sure. So I'm not sure that I have felt. Okay, so there becomes a kind of buzz that's happening sometimes in this. It, there's a kind of vortex that opens, and there is a vibration of something happening. I can't see spirits. I can't sense individual spirits like. When I have had contact from people that I've worked with, or even sometimes randomly, I feel it. Like I feel it. Um, This feels very different. It feels like energy around and it feels intense, um, which feels different than when the soul actually leaves or the spirit actually departs, which is like that awakened part. So it feels different to have that charged environment. Um, And that's when people will say things like, oh, my mother's here. Oh, and, and those are the times when people in the room go, and you just kind of look around and you're like, where, (laughs) where, or, or when people are dying and they're reaching for something, you know, or, or they're saying, I'm looking for the key. That's a common one. Or I'm looking for the door. I can't find the door or something like that. And they'll start doing things. They'll start touching, connecting, pulling, grasping, um, those are the magical moments that are so cool. <laughs> um, and you know, if people don't feel that, I want to make sure that people don't feel like, oh, that's a bummer. I didn't feel that when my mom or dad died, or I, I 
I can't feel that. I didn't feel that. That's totally fine. So it's not that, um, it's not that that thing didn't happen. It's not that their um, transition is any less magical or any less beautiful. It's just different people's frequencies. And I have found that we need both people here. We need the people who, um, who feel and sense spirit and, and all the energy. And then we need the people here who don't, who can actually get to work and do the business and make the phone calls and go put the tea kettle on and get lunch ready. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's, we need both. Everyone has that root in source 5d or wherever that is consciousness, but there are people that are more 3d centric and there are more people that are ethereally centric like us and together. What a team. It doesn't mean that the 3d people are more or less spiritual. It just means we're all fulfilling different roles. We're operating on different frequencies. Definitely. And they can end up seeing um, beautifully magical things in everyday items. You know, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, uh, that's why I love, um, that's why I named my nonprofit village death care, because it takes a village. Everybody in the village has a skill. Everybody has something they can contribute. Even if people don't want to be bedside, there's so many things that they can help with. There are so many ways that they can make phone calls or mow the lawn or pick the kids up from school or get the groceries or start a meal train. So you don't necessarily need to be doing the physical hands-on care for the person. So, So when did you start Village Death Care? Tell me about this. This is your nonprofit. Is this nationwide? Is this different people, nodes of people around the country helping people pass on? Oh, I wish it is just a baby. It's <laughs> hey, a little fledgling. Babies grow. Babies grow. <laughs> As you know. Babies do grow. And um the hopefully the nonprofit will grow. I need somebody. I'm I'm doing so much work that I need somebody to really like take village death care and get it out there and make it happen. Um, so if anybody listening, um, <laughs> you know, there's some grant writers out there. I'm telling <laughs> you, there are people that want to do this because it is very important, but you felt like founding this nonprofit was a means to get this out and normalize this more like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So the idea behind this, so death doulas are not, it's not a profession that is reimbursable by insurance companies. Mm. So death doulas can't bill an insurance company. Um, There's no licensure. Um, so death doulas either get paid on a sliding scale or they get direct payment from their client or patient or customer, whatever they call them. Um, and so that can be challenging because people oftentimes, you know, don't have enough money out of pocket to pay for the service. And yet death doulas should be getting paid for their services, for their time. They're putting their heart and, and energy and time into it. Absolutely. Um, So the idea behind the nonprofit is that people can donate to the nonprofit. They can bequeath money. We can have grants and the nonprofit will pay the death doulas so that the death doulas can do the service for free. So it doesn't matter if they're serving um, somebody who's dying out on the street. It doesn't matter if they're serving somebody who has absolutely no means to pay them whatsoever um, because they calculate their hours and their hours are reimbursable uh, through the nonprofit. So that's the whole idea behind it. Wow. That's beautiful because I do remember when midwives and birth doulas were not getting compensated from insurance companies. And now they are at least in my state in Oregon, 
I know yeah. several that do, but we should change this. This seems like something that's very easily uh, fixable. Yeah, the, a, a challenge is that as soon as, um, so I'm a very grassroots person <laughs> and the death doula movement was actually a, a, a grassroots movement to bring death care back to the families, to reawaken that, that natural service in communities. But what happened is people started to want to make money for it. And so then bigger organizations said, oh, we can make money off from training people and I want to have the best training program. And so we should have, we should be setting the standard here. We should have the scope of practice. And then we can offer that to, um, on a state level or, you know, on a federal level to have death doulas licensed. As soon as you're back in that system again, you've lost all autonomy. And so, yes, it would be cool to be able to get that compensation, but that's a death doulas were supposed to be correcting a problem. Um, and that just sounds like it's kind of uh, like another Band-Aid solution that still, uh, and what happens is then people feel like, oh, I can't care for my sister who's dying because I'm not trained because I don't have the license, because I X, Y, and Z. And my whole viewpoint and those who support community death care, it's, it's very it's very murky actually, um, really don't want that at all. They wanna empower the community and empower the family. That makes sense. You wanna keep bureaucracy out of something like this, but again, Everybody needs to get paid for their work, which is why you set up this nonprofit, which is so huge. You're, you're starting something that I feel like is really going to take off and, and really expand because this is so important. End of life plans, death nesting, planning all of this. It's a huge part of the experience. And that's what death nesting is. I mean, that's the title of your book. Death nesting is preparing for all of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Death nesting is the book title. It's also a, a physical preparation, like one might do before they give birth or before they menstruate, actually like doing some nesting. Um, and you could do that for yourself or for somebody else. And I also consider death nesting just a way of life, just a way of living, that you, you're, you're nesting for your death every single day of your life. And I know that in some ways that might sound morbid, but what it does is it keeps me in check. <laughs> so I don't mind sharing it with people because it's really beneficial for me. So when I'm pissed at somebody, I'm like, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that in me. I don't want that in me. I want love. I want to love this person. And if I can't love them directly, I want to think of love itself when their name comes up or whatever it is. Like I don't have to forgive them. I don't have to like attach anything to them. Just the experience, just, just the, you know, a, a neutral feeling of love. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's okay. Death as a motivator, I think can be okay. Right. Because you know that that is there. 
it's coming. So why waste your time with the attachments? A lot of the things you talk about, people's issues, their anxiety, their stress related to these topics, at the end of the day, it seems it's all related to just attachment, attachment to how it should be, where they're going, the feelings, not wanting to deal with the feelings. So if they could let go of the attachment, that would help immensely. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard though, because, you know, we're like, first of all, we love things. Like we love things and we love our things and our things make us feel safe. It's what we know. We know where our bed is. We know what X, Y, and Z, but there are times when, you know, in your life, when just the carpet gets ripped out from underneath you and you don't know. Right. You know, you get a diagnosis and you don't know, or somebody you love has a diagnosis and you don't know, or somebody is going to be dying, but you don't know when. And these are the times when people really flail, um, just completely ungrounded and, and just spinning out of control because what is not encouraged in our society is to both apply like a trust, like, okay, um, you know, I'm going to just trust. And, I, and I'm not even going to say trust that the outcome will be okay. I'm not going to finish the sentence. Just trust. That's it. And, and that feeling is, is really something that you need to practice. And so crises, emergency situations, um, things that come up that are unsettling are really incredible opportunities to practice a sense of trust with just relax, release over and over and over again. And if you're able to do that in these micro doses throughout your life, you're going to be able to do it heck of a lot easier when it's your dying time. Oh, absolutely. That trust, that faith, and just knowing that everything is love. So wherever you're going, whatever happens, whatever process unfolds, have faith, have trust that it was divinely designed, that you're yeah. a part of it. And in a sense, it's a graduation. Would you agree with that statement that death is a graduation, that we should be celebrating this as if somebody got a triple doctorate in, in humanity? <laughs> Did they though? Did they? I wonder. I wonder what is it that they did while they were here? I they actually get like I think so many things yeah, to me. Well, some people just get a participation trophy. How about that? Yeah, yeah. You got a certificate of completion. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, when I I think about it, it is all love and one of the most I think tangible ways of understanding this is let's say um you are you you're really angry with somebody and they said something and it made you angry and you're you know thinking about what you're going to say back to them or what you should have said or you know whatever it is so you've got this whole drama going on in your head <laughs> about you know something and then all of a sudden um like a car crashes in front of you you're not angry anymore. You're not angry at that person anymore. It vanishes because it was never real. So all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, okay, I'm okay. Is this person okay? Things get like really tight and narrow and also completely blown out at the same time. Um, 
or a, a tragedy happens, a crisis happens, a storm, a whatever it, it happens to be, those things, when, when you get a flash of reality, a flash of mortality, all of those arguments, all of those angst and petty things that we fixate on vanish. And that to me means it's because it never existed. Again, that's the attachments. We create these attachments, emotional attachments. This should have been that way because of this way. But in the grand scheme of things, in the brief moment of life that we're here, it's pretty much meaningless. Like you're saying, it has no substance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Tell me more. I want to know more. So have you ever been with anyone that was drifting between dimensions where they were here, they were there, they were here, and they came back with some stories or messages from the other side? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. One gentleman that I worked with, he was a Buddhist practitioner and I feel like he was talking to me while he was um, transitioning. Really? He was um, talking to me about um, <laughs> about all of the, the texts and all of the teachings that he had been studying his, I don't know about his whole life, but for many, many decades. Um, and he was telling me, he's like, oh my gosh, this makes sense now. I know what this means now. So all of these different realizations started flowing from him. And I was on the phone with him. So I was like, oh, my God, how do I record this? Because it was just incredibly profound. Um, so I think that's probably the closest. Um, wow. I think that's the closest besides people saying that they see people in the room with them. Wow, that's still huge, though, because this person I know like you talk about in your book, you have been a practicing studying Buddhist for a very long time. Are you still practicing? Yes, but I don't like to claim that too openly because Buddhist practitioners, it, there's a lot of different schools, a lot of different beliefs, a lot of different everything. And I don't like to be tested. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, I understand. Yes, I <laughs> but you did live in a Buddhist community for a while. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there is some of those teachings in there. Oh yeah. And I still meditate and I still read all of these Dharma books and I still, so yes. So the information was coming to him. It was, everything was unlocking. He was getting the downloads and yeah. he was just giving you a glimpse of that. What a blessing. Yeah. And it was so beautiful to hear him in just awe. Like, like he was just experiencing these things that he had only read about in a book and was able to verbalize it and tell me about it and, and confirm. <laughs> well, it seems like that's a gift for you for all the service that you've done. You get to have these special moments where you have this pathway, brief pathway to the other side where this information's coming through for you through yeah. this person. And that that's part of the gift, the thank you from the universe for being such a helpful soul. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you know, you can tell just by me going like, like, you know, as you're saying these things, because it doesn't leave. Like when I think about it, no matter who I'm there with at their bedside, every one of them is so incredibly unique. It's their own way that they did it. And it's just, it, it it's so beautiful. And you get to meet people 
some people um, I feel sad about. I'm like, gosh, I wish I knew you a long time ago because you're really cool. <laughs> and then some people, um, I don't necessarily feel that, but, you know, just some kind of experience of awe of being with them. But yeah, it's the most tender, vulnerable time in their entire life because, you know, even as a baby, when they come into the world, they have no concept of earth. And, and so they're coming in with just an, an open mind, like an open experience. So then being with somebody at the end of their life, when they're loaded with experiences, and then they have to let go of all of them is just I mean, again, just wow. even a writer. And I don't even sometimes I'm like, I don't have any words for this. <laughs> well, my mind's blown. I mean, I can feel what you mean. Like, it's just, you see the divine processes, these universal paradigms that are beyond time, space, and humanity unfold right before you. And that is humbling, very humbling. Yeah. It's like, it's like watching a star exploding or a planet, you know, coming to its life. It's just, it's, it's a universal cycle. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, like if you were able to like hold a mirror up to a star and have a star, like look at its reflection. Like, that's what I feel like just if there was like some kind of awareness that happens in the reflection, like that moment is just, there was some, it was, there was a woman that I was working with and her family was around and, um, this woman, I couldn't believe that, that she was still upright because I'm like, I think that you're leaving your body right now, but you're sitting up straight. And, uh, and I, I didn't know when she was going to die, but I knew it was coming soon. So I asked her, I said, would you like a visualization technique so that when you're ready to leave, you can use this technique? And she nodded. Her eyes were going every which way. She wasn't really seeing anything, but her eyes were wide open and she nodded and I said, okay. And um, there was some music playing. And I said, do you hear that cello? And she nodded. And I said, when you're ready, I want you to ride out on that note. I want you to sit on top of that note and ride out of your body. And her eyes rolled back into her head and she like, fell backwards, not violently. She was in bed and her family members in the room were like, because they thought she had just died and she didn't, but she could have. And so she did it like just, she was that ready. So just like the visualization of, of like how to actually do it. I'm like, okay, you're going to do this so easily when, whenever you're ready, you're going to do it the way you want. But even the family, you know, I was saying before that you, you don't always get the feedback from family, but her family was like, so that was interesting. <laughs> well, to me, that seems shamanic in nature. Like what you did there, you reached into the consciousness of this person from another dimension into that dimension and guided them there while they're there. To me, that's the definition of shamanism. Yeah. So what do you think, though, about medically assisted dying? Now, I know that you talk about it in your book, you kind of take a neutral stance, but energetically, when you're dealing with people that are passing in this way, 
Do you notice a difference? Is there something different because they made a conscious choice about the time or anything else like that? So this is this is such a fascinating topic to me. Oh, it's mind blowing to actually, me. What's that? It's mind blowing to me as well. It just blows me away. Yeah. So there are so many angles that we could come at this from. So medical aid and dying is um, just a, a real quick glimpse here at, at what what it is. So there's only um, a handful, two handfuls of states in the United States that have legalized it. So I think it's only like 10 or 12 states at this point where you're able to get a prescription from a doctor. Um, the process is not easy. Not every doctor will give the prescription. Um, you need a six month or less diagnosis. You need another doctor to second it for you. You have to administer it yourself. You have to, there are all these different hoops. Um, insurance doesn't cover it. So you have to have enough money for it. So one of my angsts with it is just how the system is set up. Because to me, that's a privileged system. It is not available to everybody. It is only available to some people in some states. It is, um, you need to have transportation to the doctor's office. You need to have um, somebody to help you with the paperwork. If you don't read or write, you have to have witnesses. You have to, if your physician does not agree with it, does not want to prescribe it to you, you have to find another physician that will do it. So then you have to have the means of being able to find that person and then another doctor to second it. Um, so, and you need enough money to do all of this. And so it's not like if you live in Vermont and medical aid and dying is available to you, it does not even necessarily mean that you have access to it even if you meet all of the criteria. So I don't like that. I, I, I feel like it's just another bar, another barrier that makes people feel like something's out of their reach. Like that's not available for you. Um, what about Canada though? Because it seems like Canada has a very expansive program. Canada extended it to, um, to those who have disabilities right. and even people who have disabilities um, they're not even totally on board with this. So you don't even need a six month or less diagnosis in um, Canada. Um, but there are other things that can happen. So if let's say a family member has been taking care of their loved one um, and they've been taking care of their loved one, regardless, let's leave Canada out of this for a minute, but let's go back to the United States. So sure. if their loved one has six month or less um, diagnosis, and they have access to medical aid and dying. And let's say they even have the prescription, they've got the prescription. I've seen firsthand pressure from, um, I'll just say the family for the person to ingest the medication. Oh God, Jesus. That sounds I, horrible. That sounds energetically yeah. just horrible. Yes. So there are those stories out there. I don't want to um, glorify it. The same thing happens, um, which is why the, the community of those with disabilities, the differently abled community in Canada was like, how dare you put us in the category with people who are dying? You think that our life is not worth living. So you're giving us an exit. And similarly, those people could feel pressure to actually take medical aid in dying 
because it's available, because their life is quote unquote, so, you know, not worth living or, you know, causing. So it's really nuanced. So what I like, <laughs> what I, what I prefer a couple different things. People have always hastened death before the doctors and lawyers and state legislation got involved. People have always hastened death in many different ways. And you have referred to shaman or your local witch, or you know what herbs or mushrooms in your backyard will do the trick or grabbing a bottle of whiskey and going outside on a cold night. So I know that, and, and that sounds kind of crazy and extreme, but what I'm saying is that as soon as the um, the doctors and lawyers and state laws get involved, things get really complex. And then you need to qualify for these for these things. There's also um, VSED, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. So you just taper off your eating and drinking, which also is a way of hastening death. Coming off from your meds is a way of hastening death if you have meds that are extending your life. Um, yeah, so there are other options. And but what I don't like about medical aid and dying is people tend to fixate on it like it's gold, like it's a it's a beautiful thing that's going to solve all the problems. And it's not. The death it still affects everybody differently. It's not necessarily, um, sometimes it's beautiful. Sometimes it's perfect. Really? Sometimes it's, sometimes it's beautiful. It's just the way the person wanted and everybody is fine and it's great and whatever. Then there are the people who are really, really upset in the family that the person hastened their death with medical aid and dying. And there's a lot of emotional fallout. Um, it's, it's just, it's so nuanced. It's so, there's there is, so many yeah. different things that I'm like, it's hard for me to, you know, somebody, one, one woman came to me and she was crying uncontrollably because she witnessed the death, medical aid and dying. She was, um, it was their family member and she knew this was coming and everybody knew it was coming and the family member took it intentionally and everything was great. But then the woman after was crying and she said, why do I feel like I just witnessed something so violent? And I had to think about this. I was like, hmm. <laughs> and I believe it's because, I, I, I don't know, but I'm speculating that when somebody is leaving their body, they like are ramping up. And they'll even like, sometimes they'll be dying, dying, dying. And then they'll get an, another, um, another wind. And they'll all of a sudden sit up and talk to people or they say, oh, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry. And then they die soon after. So that's, that's pretty common that people will be dying and then they'll rally and then they'll actually die. So in that process, there's like this ramping up of energy where they actually they come back just so that they have enough momentum to like get out of their body. And <laughs> because it's work, it's labor getting out of your body, just like a, just like giving birth labor, getting, getting the baby and onto the, into this planet. Um, 
And that's missing, or at least I'm not going to generalize. In that circumstance, that was missing. And so it was quick. It was sudden. There was no ramping up. The person was fine, and then they were dead. Uh... Fine, as in they were, you know, communicating, talking. And, and it was peaceful. It was a peaceful transition. It was, um, there was nothing dramatic that happened. And yet this person was sobbing. She said, why do I feel like it was so violent? And so I, that's, that's what I think. Wow. So the, the soul literally got ripped out of the body versus going through that ramping up natural process that is kind of like a vibratory adjustment i i would imagine versus just getting rocket shipped ripped out and you're ah, trying to adjust wait hold on i'm not resonant with the frequency yet okay there we got there you know like i can only imagine yeah yeah (sighs) i i don't know and you know i haven't been around um (laughs) i've never actually been there when the person has ingested it so i hear all of these stories and I have, um, you know, I, I teach that, the, the course that I teach. Um, and so it's a 12-week course and there's about uh, 20 to 25 students uh, in each session. And everybody writes an essay a week for the most part. If everybody's doing their homework, they write an essay a week. So I have thousands of essays that I have read on people's experiences with all kinds of different things, which is why I, you know, I could write another book, but, um, medical, medical deaths are not always, they're not always perfect. No, definitely not. Especially if you think about the various things that could happen. Yeah. So, but it is fascinating. And should people have the right to die? I feel, yeah, of course. I just don't like the complexities. (laughs) It does seem very strange. I heard recently that Canada is thinking about expanding it to mentally ill people and also children, babies, infants. So I don't know enough about it. I'm just thinking about it spiritually and energetically. And as you you think about Buddhism and reincarnation, like how would that affect that? To me, it it would be like a different energy almost. Yeah. Those who have um, uh, mental um, challenges who are um, chronically depressed and and also infants and children, that has been done in the Netherlands. So Canada better be... I'm sure they are. Actually, I'm not sure that they are. Like they, they should really look at the what has gone on in the Netherlands because that is not always cool either. It has been. Um, it's it's just so fascinating. So, at what age do you allow somebody? Um, let's say um, a 12 year old is threatening suicide. Do you allow them? A lot of people would say no. Do you allow them to have the prescription to end their life? Uh, is 22 old enough? Is 30 old enough? Is 50 old enough? Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so, start, so then everybody starts trying to determine like what the proper age is. And I'm like, this is bonkers. And at the same time, one of the points, you can read the story of, there's an article about what happened in the Netherlands. One mother, I believe it was a mother whose son jumped in front of a train to end their life. 
the mother said, I wish the prescription had been available because their death impacted everybody on the train, impacted the driver, impacted the cleanup crew, impacted all of the um, the patrons on the train. And so I can see that side of it too, right? Like, <laughs> There's so many different variables. There's so many different ways to look at it. There has to be moral and ethical guidelines. It doesn't feel good. I'm just going to say intuitively for me, it doesn't feel good. I, I feel like the divine plan is perfect and however things unfold, that's how they're meant to unfold. And yet this exists. So I, I just don't know. And, and I just don't know if beings we have autonomous rights. Do we have the right to pull our own plug at any age? I, I just, whew, I it's a heavy it's concept. I think it's um, potentially a segue to something that's really dangerous, which is, um, you know, if, if the law is saying who can, who has the right to die, how easily could that slip into something else where, um, you know, there are a lot of people who have been, <laughs> abused by the medical system that do not trust medical aid and dying. So a lot of people of color are like, how dare you offer me medical aid and dying? Like you didn't take care of me all of these years through my medical needs. And now you're giving me an easy way out. Like it's insulting. And you know, those hospitals get tax kickbacks and things like that. So they have this dark incentive to kind of push this. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know if if they are pushing it or not. But I'm just seeing like it. it it's it just it's seems messy. It, it is messy. It does seem in Canada that there's a big push for it. I don't really hear it much in the states, but because I'm involved in media and different news things that we cover, I see a lot of this, and I see it coming from Canada quite a bit. This kind of normalization of like, oh well, you can choose to get treatment or you could just choose to leave. Yeah, whatever, whatever you feel like you want to do. Yeah, <laughs> and how how quickly will it happen if the treatment is not available? That um, I'm just really speculating now. They're like, this is your option. Or you know? hey, if you want to have any more painkillers, we we don't have any more meds. So here and that that these pills are just handed out. Like I don't know. <laughs> hey, if you really want to speculate, you could eventually say if you don't have a certain social credit score, perhaps uh, you might have to be part yeah, of the main program. Go, we could go really black on this. <laughs> but <laughs> death, death, it's such an important part of our life. It's part of our cyclical nature, and it's important for humans. But you also talk about in your book how important it is for pets because these are living conscious beings. I love my cat. People love their pets. They need that same death nesting, that same process of love, compassion, caring, and all of that during their death process. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think pet, the idea of pet doulas is the most beautiful thing to care for your little Fur babies, I love them. Um, people <laughs> have asked me to come doula their animals, and I say no. So maybe some people do this, but I coach them how to do it because the animal doesn't want a stranger in the house. Right. The animal doesn't want, they're like, think about it. Like when you have company, my cats run and hide 
and my dog gets completely overjoyed and beside himself. I don't want either of those things to happen energetically when my pet is dying. So I or my family members will be our our pet's doula. Um, but yeah, I it's it's beautiful and and I just like to um support people whatever whatever it is that they want to do, let them talk through it because euthanization is a hard a hard thing to consider too. But with the pets, you do utilize the same techniques, the same practices for the most part as you would with a human being. Well, in the US you ingest um the medication by with a drink. It's a cocktail. So you have to drink it yourself or with a straw. Um, but in other countries, and I believe in Canada, um, but this was, I, I haven't checked very recently. It's an injection. So yes, similar to animals. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we've had such an incredible interview. My God, I know we could talk for hours, but there's just a couple more questions I want to ask you. Okay. So, you know, or perhaps maybe you've heard that the compound DMT, which is in our brain is released when we're born. It's released when we're dying. Some people say now it's in five different regions of the brain. It's all throughout nature. What do you think about DMT being released at the time of death? Have you ever noticed that frequency specifically? Oh my gosh, Jake, what are you doing to me? You're asking me these questions. Okay. Okay. Have I? No, I can't detect when DMT is being released in the brain. I've, I've done five MEO. <laughs> I've smoked toad venom. Well, I would, uh, did you have a near death experience? Because that's what I had an NDE when I did that actually. Yes. The most yeah, people I, have when, when they do the yeah. five MAO, it's, it's the true simulation dry run death experience. Yes, it was like nothing that I have ever experienced before. Um, and I don't know if I'll do it again because I was like, got it. And I'll do that again when I die. Maybe I'll change my mind because it, I had a wonderful experience. It didn't scare me at all. It was a peak moment in my life, but, um, yeah. So, but it has helped me trust, um, that, that you're that what you're doing with your mind at your time of death is really important. That's what it has helped me trust. So I do believe that um, we should try to tend to our minds as carefully as possible throughout our living and where we place our attention so that when we die, no matter where we are, no matter what the situation is, we can access that place in our mind that is peaceful. Mm, right. So, because we don't, we don't know how it's going to go. We don't know if we'll have a heart attack, a, a stroke, there are a car accident. You know, not all of them are beautiful in bed the way you'd like it, um, or medicated. Like you know, so um, it has made me, <laughs> especially when you find out other people's stories about what has happened to them in their experience, because they're all really different. Um, and they may have been in like a great state of mind when it happened, you know, and then they just had this really intense experience. Who knows? I, I think there's no rhyme or reason to what or how people experience things, but it did make me aware that or really solidify how important it is to pay attention to your mind uh, now. Wow. And isn't that mind blowing that these humans, our fellow humans are having this experience, that five MAO DMT experience as they're leaving this dimension. 
Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who believes that every death doula should do it. <laughs> oh, at least once. Yes. It's, at it's, least once. it's a great recreational thing. And now that it's becoming legalized in places like Colorado, Seattle, here in Portland, Oregon, it's going to be a lot more uh, available and pharmaceutically created. Oh, five MEO. It, it's being well, not five MEO. The NNDMT is the synthesized version. So there are oh, two yeah. different experiences. The NNDMT, the five MAO DMT is like the true NDE experience. The NNDMT, while different, has a similar potency of experience, but it's totally different. It'll take you, you know, to the aliens, the gnomes. It's a different, far different experience, but that totally. still will be available as it's legalized. The five MEO will be available in dispensaries. Amazing. That's good. That's good. And then eventually they'll start, stop harvesting it from the toads because we got to watch out for our friends. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had one of those toads come up to me in Moab, Utah, and I, I looked at it and I was like, God, I, I could take you home with me, but you need to just stay here. You don't want to come out <laughs> with me. Aww. Yeah, it was beautiful. But before we go, this has been an incredible interview. Thank you so much for your time. This has been so cool talking about these things. And I just want to ask you before we go, do you think that people will start to really bring death home. You talk about home funerals, death nesting. Are we culturally shifting to allow this to be a normal part of our lives? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, it's going to have to, there's not going to be a choice uh, because uh, there is not enough, there are not enough care facilities for people. Um, the baby boomer generation, they um, have just started entering um, residential care and assisted living. Um, but there's a whole force of other baby boomers behind them and there are not enough facilities and there are not enough people to care for them. Um, this might be one place where AI ends up, you know, robots end up taking care of patients. We're like kind of looking at that scale. Um, not that I have, um, read anything like that i'm hypothesizing because there already is a shortage of caregivers and uh nurse assistants are paid so miserably and it's it's the most demanding work it's emotionally demanding it's physically demanding um so yes people are going to have to be dying at home and that's not necessarily a great thing because there might not be uh any care or we, you don't know what the level of care is at home. So I do talk about death nesting is about how to care for your loved one at home. However, um, I also have all of these caveats throughout the book saying, um, you know, if this is available, if it's not, if this is a dying situation like this, uh, naming alternative locations. Um, and the example that I give in the book is, one bed, one lamp, you know, like you just have, uh, you know, the most basic accommodations. And I also reference that people die around the world with no running water and with X, Y, and Z. And, and they're still, you know, they still die. But the hair is um, a big, big, big problem, which is another reason why I'm, I'm all for the professionalization of death doula work. And 
I will never give up on the grassroots and, and getting it out there. And if it becomes, um, licensed and you can no longer use the term death doula, we'll just change the name, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's just, yes, you have to keep it authentic and exactly how it was. It's, it's almost like a transmission throughout time. This, this role, this human role, it can't be corrupted though it, the aspects of it may get absorbed by the system. But no matter what, though, we do want to remind people that no matter how we pass, whether we're totally taken care of in a death-nested situation or we're in a war zone or a car crash, as we leave our body, it's entering a process that's perfect and designed divinely. Therefore, you will go exactly where you need to go and there's nothing to fear or worry about right yes and i would say to to practice the feeling of trust um and if you can and um not trust a thing not trust an outcome but what does trust feel like to you and really explore that and it might be something that you work with for the rest of your life but um trust is uh, I think the name of the game and self-love mm. self is a really big one too. I think they go hand in hand because when you love yourself, you awaken that understanding that you're part of divine love. And then the trust comes into play and the faith, my God, Anne Marie, this is so cool. Look, I have to tell people where to find you. Let me tell you the website people all over the world, 178 countries. Now it's pretty amazing. dot annemariekempel.com. I'm going to spell this A-N-N-E-M-A-R-I-E-K-E-P-P-E-L. annemariekempel.com. stardustmeadow.com is another website you can go to as well. You can find the in-person death nesting retreats. There's an upcoming retreat this spring in Costa Rica. Sounds amazing. And Village Death Care, the nonprofit, and the book we're talking about today, Death Nesting, the Heart-Centered Practices of a Death Doula, available on Amazon and anywhere else you can buy books. Anne-Marie, my God, incredible conversation. We knocked it out of the park. We had incredible flow. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with before we go? Jake, I just love your whole thing. I love your whole vibe. I love your background. The stars are twinkling back there. You're easy to talk to. I like your lap. Like, it's good. I had a great time. This was really fun. Well, I guess that means we have to have you back on. So, you know, as things expand or anytime, really, you want to come back, just let me know. So thank you again for being here. Please hold through the outro music. And everyone, check out the website, check out the book. If you know you're going to be in Costa Rica in the spring, maybe you can go to this retreat. There's so much going on. Check the websites, and we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.